And uh, I um, am still wrestling with Nico's prayer. I'll just confess. I... And if every once in a while, throughout this message, I just kind of have this moment where I go blank, it's because I've gone back to Nico's prayer. So it's been a very full news week. Um, if you are one who follows the news and watches things that take place and uh, read papers or watch uh, 11 o'clock news at night, um, we had a big event that took place on Thursday early in the morning. I don't know how many of you decided to go out at 5.30 in the morning and uh, look at what was a um, full super blue blood moon. I think I got all the right adjectives in there. Pardon me? Oh, was it Wednesday morning? It was the 31st. Thank you. Um, so the um, event, for those of you, I'm, I'm assuming a couple of you went out to see it. I went out and couldn't find it because the trees blocked the horizon, and it was pretty low on the horizon at about 5.45 in the morning, so I had to go to a spot where the trees weren't blocking it. And there I saw the um, things that they had been referencing for so long. For those of you um, who missed it, uh, the last time it happened was 1866, so there are only a few of you that might have seen it then, and if you skipped out on it, I understand, because no need to see it twice in a lifetime. Um, but what made it a super blue moon was um, it's a name that's given to the second full moon in a month, because that doesn't happen very often, and so it was the 31st, it was a full moon, so that's the description that's given to that. But the fact that on that particular date, there would also be a total eclipse of the moon, which is uh, something that occurs and doesn't make the moon completely disappear, though the bright white light that usually is the face of the moon to us slowly disappears and is replaced by this deep burnt orange hue that is often referred to as a blood moon. And so it's an interesting event that took place. The reason I bring that up really has to do with the context of where we've been in Mark chapter 1. There's nowhere in Mark chapter 1 that refers to that. But you might remember sometime in your reading that scripture on a couple of occasions makes reference to the sun going dark and the moon turning to blood. And it has often been viewed in the context in which it was uh, that you might read it as being some prophetic view of an apocalyptic moment, well, certainly to the people who were writing, Joel being one of them. Joel chapter 2, I think it's verse 31, makes reference to this. And then we find it again in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 2, verse 20, um, that makes reference to this prophetic statement from the book of Joel. And they were not ignorant of eclipses. Eclipsi? I don't know what the right word is there, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, the phenomena that takes place certainly would be very attention-getting and would be recognized as something that was very dramatic. But writers very often referenced the objects in the sky as being symbols for things that were taking place on Earth. So it is certainly not an uncommon practice for ancient writers to make reference to major events that would happen in the sky. And certainly not every time you read the word sun or moon in scripture 
you immediately need to go to some symbolic meaning, but very often the reference made to the sun would indicate the, the powers of the empire. So for the writer of Acts to reference that, it would be an easy way to bring up or mention the powers of the Roman Empire that kind of governs the sky as the sun does. And the Roman Empire and all of their laws govern the people. The moon being the smaller of the two celestial objects, but still very significant in the life of the people, would often represent the more local governance. And as we've said over the course of the last two weeks, the political governance and the religious governance were so intertwined that it would be very likely that a reference might be to both of those. So this major event that took place this last week, for me, was this amazing reminder that people 2,000 years ago and 4,000 years ago were wrestling with similar issues and the scripture becomes for me in this moment an opportunity to say, and so what does it teach me? What are the inter eternal truths? What are the messages that, that um, over time have stood the test of time and jump off the pages of this very sacred, holy writing inspired by God to guide me in my life and to hold me steady? And so into that context, we jump back into Mark, chapter 1, which is where we've been for a while, recognizing that Jesus, and the way Jesus is living out this inauguration of the ministry portion of his life, and the writer Mark, as Mark depicts the events of Jesus' life, is in so many ways addressing these major powers that have taken over the way in which people live, the way in which they worship, the way in which they um, are taxed, the way in which they live in community, the way in which co economy is handled. It is a powerful written piece that is so relevant to that day, and I hope you've seen over the course of the last several weeks, is very relevant to us today as well. So we find in this passage that was just read, in verse 29 of chapter 1, Jesus goes with James and John and Simon and Andrew, Simon is also Peter, to their home, the home of Simon and Andrew. And there we find Simon's mother-in-law, who is sick with a fever. And as we progress in this reading, we see that Jesus goes to the mother-in-law. I have no idea what her name is, but I'm just going to call her mom from this point on. Jesus goes to mom, takes her by the hand, and helps her up. And it says that the fever was immediately gone. And then comes the phrase that is the focus of this morning's message. And it says, and she got up and served them. Now in first reading, this is an incredibly uncomfortable passage. Because it feels like in this moment that we can kind of co-opt this and use it in all such sort of horrific ways and become very frustrated that nobody says, Really? Nobody else is stepping into this place to serve everyone else? You're not going to give her a day to kind of recover, enjoy the day off, go out and enjoy the... 
She gets up from her fever and she starts serving others. Doesn't anybody say that's ridiculous? It feels that way to me until I realize that I need to just for a moment take it out of my culture and the agenda that I might place on this and try and understand the writings of Mark and the work of Jesus. If she had this fever, then let's hail back to last week and recognize that she is sick. She's marginalized. She's separated. She's put off to the side. She can't participate in the things that are part of community. She can't participate in celebration. She can't, I mean, she's sick. She has this fever. She can't do the things that she normally does. And the ways in which all of the different systems come together affect her because in that context, the way in which community operated included the ways in which economy worked, included the ways in which worship happened, included the ways in which the village functioned. And so she is partitioned off. She is separated, unable to participate in all of the things that are valuable as part of community. So to put this statement in here is not a statement of who should be serving and who shouldn't. It is a statement about what Jesus is doing. He is restoring her into a place where she can resume her function in the community. So for a moment, separate yourself as to whether or not the way the community functions is the way that it ought to function. That's not the point of this story. The point is that Jesus is providing a shift in what restoration means, in what healing means. And she is given this chance to move out of being ostracized, unclean, unable to participate. By what Jesus does, there is a restoration that involves economics, religion, politics, community, family. This is an upheaval of, of the way in which the community operates. She steps into this place of service. The title of this message is Hurting Healer. There's a book by Henry Nowen called Wounded Healer. It is not acclaimed as much as many of his other works, but it's a pretty powerful book that speaks about the ways in which we minister out of our woundedness. I, I would contend that this woman is one of the most powerful heroes in Scripture by what she does. And I hope in the course of the next few minutes that you will come to see the amazing power of this story and the ways in which this woman depicts what Christ does for us. We find in another passage of Scripture, 1 Peter, chapter 2 at the very end, verses 23 and 24, it speaks about Jesus taking on our sin, carrying our unrighteousness, and by his stripes we are healed. Peter proclaims that Christ's wounds, 
Christ's woundedness is what brings healing to us. That's how healing comes into our journey. Isn't that a fascinating notion? That out of the wounds of the Messiah, our wounds find healing. And here we have this amazing woman who depicts it right now. At the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, that out of her woundedness, she becomes a blessing to others in the community. She becomes one who provides the potential for healing in other people's lives. Here's the paradox. As wonderful as that is, and as powerful as it is, I would propose that more often what happens is that out of our woundedness, we wound others. In fact, I would say that the source of most woundedness comes out of wounds of someone else. Isn't that an interesting paradox? But if we don't address the woundedness in our own life, if we don't wrestle with our own self-awareness, if we ignore the things that drive so much of our behavior, then eventually out of that woundedness, the toxicity is going to come out. And we're going to wound somebody else. It happens over and over and over again. We try and kind of... Uh, hide that or mask it. We're masters as a human race of doing that. We'll mask it by trying to go numb to those woundedness. Some of the things that immediately come to mind, we, we drink, we take drugs, we um, go into this hyperactivity mode. We also do it with um, what seem to be less innocuous ways of um, inundating ourselves with media, with TV, with phones, with whatever it else is that can occupy our minds and our time so that we don't have to face ourselves. But we can go in hyper mode into all of these other things. We may do it in ways that are socially pleasing. Productivity is a wonderful way to mask the woundedness within. To be very busy and boy, people will praise us if we work hard and and we give our attention to all of the many things that we can do to project this sense of success. But those wounds that are deep, if unaddressed, come back because they've never gone away. And they've never healed. And eventually they find outlet in very hurtful, destructive ways. We had also in our news this week uh, very, very difficult news. Um, a pastor of a sister church to ours um, has been accused of alleged rape and sexual assault. Um, it's tragic in every sense of the word. It hit the 11 o'clock news this weekend. It's been in multiple publications. It is, I hope, cause to cause us to pray to grieve, to mourn, to hurt, along with those who are hurting. It's particularly difficult in that the connection that has to do with our neighbor next door, the school, 
um, has led to the kind of litigation where uh, people are instructed to be silent. And I understand that. I get when there are um, issues like this that sometimes the court systems place restrictions that make it hard to step into those arenas and have discussions. It's doubly hard when one of the values that we hold as a church is transparency and that talking about things helps us move closer to what Christ wants us to be. And so I understand the awkwardness of some who are part of our congregation and the difficulty of walking in these places. But I have to say, we need to talk about things like this. We need to wrestle with the relevancy of the gospel. Does the gospel make any difference to us? I'll tell you, I'm very grateful for what feels like, I've said this before, a, 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 at least somewhat of a movement in our culture where we won't tolerate like we have in the past a hiding, secret keeping, or, or a, a shaming silence that strips people of their voice, that somehow we have moved a little bit in a direction where there is some truth-telling that can take place. And I, I'm grateful for that. And I hope that that continues and that we find ways to give voice to people who have had no voice. Is that not part of our calling, to do that very thing? So I'm grateful for that kind of movement that takes place. I will, not wanting to pass the celebration that happens there, I also want to say that if naming a sin makes us feel like we've done what we need to do, then we are setting ourselves up for even further tragedy. Leviticus names sins. We can go through the list in Leviticus and name everything that's unclean, the sins that separate us from God. We have laundry lists of things that are not right, that should be called out. But the message of the Gospels is that the law is inadequate to address what we need to address. Unless a heart is changed, unless a mind is renewed, unless we do the hard work of digging in to what is it within us that makes us complicit in a culture that has been what the culture has been, then we are doomed to repeat sins over and over again and the tragedies continue. There is a call on us to be faithful. Because I can go through this laundry list of things that we can use to cover up, and I'll, that may sound like an, kind of an evangelical rant against all of the things our culture. Let's strike it right at home. One of the worst ways and most dangerous ways that we avoid self-reflection is religious activity. We join in and do some wonderful, compassionate ministries. Let's go on a missions trip and help others. Let's talk about the ways in which we're going to gather together for Ash Wednesday and go through the motions of a Sunday morning service. If all of those things, which are good things, become a way by which we can avoid addressing the, the difficult pain hurt in our lives, then we have participated in the worst of tragedies that religious activity masks the woundedness within. 
So the call really is to step into the hard work. Maybe you don't need this, but it seems to me that there are some significant misconceptions of salvation. As if somehow there is this spiritual magic that happens in salvation. There's spiritual birth that happens with salvation. There is this amazing moment where I, where I realize the God who created me forgives me. He calls me God's child. That in itself is life transforming. But let me remind you of some things that salvation is not. Salvation doesn't somehow erase my history. God can redeem my history, but it isn't somehow erased. God can redeem anything, unless I say, God, don't redeem me, and God respects that. But God can redeem anything about my history, but it's not suddenly erased. Salvation doesn't somehow give me a different family of origin. With all its good and bad, I still have my family of origin and all of the things that created possibilities and wounds in my family of origin. My family of origin is not all of a sudden gone, but I do realize that I also have a new family with whom I can do the journey and walk with brothers and sisters who share the journey with me and, and help me through this process of becoming more and more like Christ. It doesn't take away the consequences of my behavior and my poor decisions. Now, salvation can move me toward making new decisions that will help mediate what's happened in the past that might change some of those consequences but just because I've given my life to Christ doesn't somehow magically make all of the consequences of poor choices disappear. I still have to wrestle with those things. I just wrestle with them, and I'm not alone. I have my Creator, the one who understands and knows and walks with me, and I have a community of faith that comes alongside, at least I pray, my community of faith does. Salvation doesn't immediately get rid of the, the demons that have kind of um, molded my behavior, the ruts of my past, the patterns that have developed, the ways in which I react and my defenses go up. Salvation doesn't immediately make all of those things disappear. God has to begin to work in my life as those things come to the surface. Because... Salvation doesn't immediately take away my ignorance. The scripture says you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free, but I don't know all of the truth. I'm learning those things. It's not as if salvation takes away my ignorance, but it does give me a wisdom, a spiritual wisdom, a sensitivity to what truth is about and how to pursue those things. Salvation gives me freedom, but that doesn't take away my responsibility. It gives me forgiveness, but it doesn't mean that I don't have to go and make restitution. It doesn't take away the stories that have formed my life. It just gives me a new story, a bigger story, 
a more amazing story into which those stories fit and become simply subplots, not D-plots. You know, I have to say, one of the things that I love about the organization called AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, I love that when you're in the group and you're about ready to speak or say something, you say your name, and then you proclaim the worst of who you are. For example, somebody might say, hi, my name's Tom, and I'm an alcoholic. Just says it right out there. There it is. For everyone to see and to hear. And then the response of the crowd is, everyone says, hi, Tom. There's this greeting. It's, hi. You're part of the group. What it's like to be known by your worst and to be accepted. Now, let me make something perfectly clear. It's not that that is celebrated, it's confessed. It's not a celebration that I'm an alcoholic, it's a confession that I'm an alcoholic. What they celebrate, and they celebrate well, is one day of sobriety, a week of sobriety, 30 days of sobriety, we've got a pen for a year of sobriety, 10 years of sobriety. There's celebration of sobriety, but there's confession of woundedness. We're really great in the church at celebrating. We celebrate what happened at winter camp. We celebrate the number of people who go on a mission trip. We celebrate what funds did to the orphanage that we're associated with at the border. We celebrate births and baptisms and weddings. We've got a service that's called the New Celebration Service. We celebrate well. We don't confess real well. And it seems to me that if we don't become more aware of confession, then we are destined to repeat over and over again the things that wound, that destroy, that hurt. One of the powerful things of the doctrine of sanctification of holiness is that it is a call to allow God to work into all of those areas of our life of woundedness. See, my heart becomes a reflection of my wounds, but that's not what it was intended to reflect. It was intended to reflect Christ's holiness and wholeness. It was intended to reflect God's grace, but what it more often reflects are the heart hurts that I've had in my journey. So that's the first place I need to allow Christ to begin to work, whether the hurt was yesterday or the hurt was 40 years ago. I need to go to those places and say, Oh, Lord, I never wanted to go there again, but I need healing. I have partitioned this off as if somehow keeping it at a distance would somehow help me to survive. 
And maybe it did for a period, but it's not the solution. It's a temporary response. For some of us, that temporary response has lasted far longer than it was intended to last. Have you ever listened to the or read the 12 steps of the AA organization? You might have heard them. I feel free to listen to them one more time. It's amazing. First step is an acknowledgement that uh, I am powerless in the face of alcohol created this chaos. Now, substitute whatever is the thing in your life for the word alcohol. I realize that I am powerless in the face of, insert here, your issue. Step number two, I've realized that I need God to correct this insanity to bring sanity back into my life. I have turned and I have given over to God my will and my life. I have taken a searching and fearless inventory of all aspects of my life And I have confessed to God, to myself, and to others, another human being, the things that I have done. I've realized my need for God to correct these character flaws. And I have humbled myself before God in asking for God's I've taken an inventory of all of the people that I have harmed and I recognize that I need to make amends for these wrongs. And I have gone to these people and made amends except for it might cause them more harm or someone else more harm. I continue to take an inventory of my life and when I am wrong, I do my best to quickly, readily confess it and acknowledge it. I go to prayer and I seek out closer communion with God and seek out God's will and do my best to follow it. And having realized what this has done in my life, I share this same thing with others. Pretty powerful. Only slightly paraphrased, those are the 12 steps. come back full circle to mom. I want to be cautious here that we don't read in something that is not intended. She was healed of the fever. She begins to serve. Just a word of caution for all of us. Healing can take place in dramatic ways, sometimes, though pretty rarely, in a quick fashion that allows somebody to move and heal others out of that woundedness. Far and away, what is more typical is that healing takes time. Let's be slow to move into that process where I want to help everyone else who struggled with the same thing that I've had. Slow down. 
let God's spirit work. Let some time pass. Let the real woundedness come up. Let the stuff that you don't yet know, the, the pieces that I have forgotten, the pain that I have suppressed, let God's spirit work in those ways. How does that happen? I'm not sure how it happens for you. I, I would say that here are some suggestions. We go back to the Word again, but we say, Oh Lord, help me not to simply read the Word as a storyline, uh, a piece of literature, but help me to find myself in Scripture. Who are the characters that look like me, that hurt like me, that were wounded like me? Oh God, take me into your Word and help it to kind of show to me a mirror that begins to expose these things. Maybe in prayer, it's a lot less about lifting up petitions on behalf of other people and a little more time spent on saying, okay, God, work on me. Help me to listen well. I'm, I'm sure you know all of my requests for the others in my life. Lord, please let your spirit work in my life in significant ways. Maybe it's moving into a community of people, people you can trust, and being on this journey with them. Maybe it's walking through the 12 steps that I just mentioned and letting that be a way by which you reflect. It is work. This notion of holiness, for our heart to become a reflection of God's grace, this is a journey of self-exploration. It's out of that awareness that we understand God in new ways. Because until we do that, God becomes a God of our own creation. We impose onto God all of the things that have to do with our woundedness and our hopes and our unrealistic notions. But in the midst of addressing woundedness, God becomes God. This transcendent one who loves you and me. By the circumstances that we have had thrown in front of us. Overwhelming at times. Do they raise up anger, frustration, hurt? Yeah, all of those things. But if at the end of this day it's simply about naming something, then we haven't stepped very far down the road. Praise God that it gets named. But oh God, help us that it doesn't stop there. Don't let our religious activity be a cover-up for not doing the hard work of faith. God, make us a community where we are not satisfied with silence. We're not satisfied with being complicit. We are not satisfied as well with simply naming things, but to saying, and oh God, in me, where have I been the wounding one. This moth, she is the hurting healer, the one who comes out of being pushed aside and becomes the purveyor of blessing and grace and healing to others. In this short verse, it becomes the model of Christ's discipleship. To go into those places that are feverish in our own life. 
giving them to Christ and letting healing be the hallmark of our journey. I mentioned ways in which you can dig deeper. It may be a spiritual mentor, a spiritual guide. For some of us, it's counseling. I'll introduce you to my own therapist. There are a dozen wonderful therapists in our congregation here. There are so many ways by which our journey can be molded by this journey in community. And it's community in Christ. And so when we come to the table of grace, it is an invitation to the kind of communion that needs to characterize our community. Mark, come and lead us.